is Virgil. If you've been walking with me through comedy, you know that the answer to that question is difficult. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. And we have come to the opening lines of Canto 9 of Inferno, lines 1 through 33. Let me say that this is where we were. We have left Virgil and Dante standing outside the walls of Dis. The doors and gates have been shut against Virgil's mm, chest. I translated his face, but I explained last time why it's really chest. They're standing there. Virgil's in doubt, and yet at the same time, Virgil's trying to buck our pilgrim up. And the canto ended at a suspenseful moment. We're going to pick it up here. Canto 9, Inferno, lines 1 through 33. The color that cowardice had painted my face when I saw my leader turn back and retreat made him hurry up and get a grip on his own pallor. He stopped like a man who listens alert, since his eyes could not reach very far into the black air and the clotted fog. We still should be able to win this fight, he began, unless... But such a one was promised. Oh, I think it takes too long for another to come. I knew exactly that he had covered up what he had started to say and had spoken in a completely different way. But what he said still filled me with fear because I understood the broken words to mean worse than even he intended. Does anyone from the first circle where the only punishment is the loss of hope ever get this far down into the sad pit? So I made this question. And this. Only rarely. He replied to me, Do any of us make the journey as I go now? To be honest, once before, I came this way conjured by remorseless Erichtho, who bring shades back to their bodies. I had not long been denuded from my flesh when she made me enter these walls to snatch a soul from the circle of Judas. There's nowhere lower or blacker or farther from the heaven that wheels over everything. I well know the way, so you can be certain of that. This swamp that belches foul crap completely garters the sorrowful city. We can't get in without some sort of wrath. There is so much in this passage. I have waited so long to get to this passage. So without any further ado, let's just do it. I love this passage, I love the problems it brings up, and I love the whole wild story of Erichtho and Virgil, which I will talk about endlessly. But first, I want to say a couple of things, and these are about the Circle of Wrath, where we have been all along. And these are two little notes. I want to add to the further interpretive framework of this Circle of Wrath, where we've been for quite a while, since all the way back in Canto 7. Here they are. One, Virgil does not seem to be blocked by any of the classical figures, Charon, Minos, Cerberus, Plutus, Phlegius, any of these figures, he doesn't seem to have a problem with any of them. He's been blocked here with demons. Is there something to that? Our pagan poet is able to get past or get around the classical figures in Inferno, 
but he's not able to get around the distinctly Christian figures. That is, our first demons who have been sitting up on the walls of Dis. There may be something to this, and there may be more we need to say about it, but we're going to have to wait for the next passage and who appears on the walls of Dis before we can fully say the answer to this question, or at least tease it out even more. And here's two. Remember, we're in the circle of wrath, right? This is the circle in which parental figuring has, well, entered the poem. We had that line about blessed is the womb who bore you that Virgil said to Dante the pilgrim. Then we had this notion of Virgil as the father who abandons the pilgrim, well, who promises never to, and then turns right around and abandons him and walks up to the walls of Dis. And this is interesting, I think, if you just step back and allow me this, give it a modern psychoanalytic reading. What's interesting here is that we are in the circle of wrath, and in this circle, parental figures make their presence felt underneath the text. Surely, in a modern developmental psychology matrix, we would not be surprised that Dante mentions, finds a ground resonance, finds an echo with his parents who died when he was young here in the circle of wrath. I realize that this is an extraordinarily modern twist on it, but I always think about it when I'm in wrath, that here come the parental figures, Virgil as the father figure, the reference to Dante's mother, the womb that bore you, and surely there is all sorts of anger running underneath our poet at the loss of his parents at an early age. Again, that assumes a modern psychology on the poem, but I sure like it. I'm going to work through this passage now a little quickly because I really want to save time for Erichtho. The passage starts out, The color that cowardice had painted my face, and cowardice, we're back to Canto 2. Line 45, if you want to be exact. Remember back in Canto 2, when Dante goes through that whole thing of, who am I to take this journey? I am not Aeneas. I am not Paul. Remember I told you that Virgil nails him to the wall and basically dismisses all of those concerns about Aeneas and Paul and basically says, your real problem is cowardice. Here, cowardice has re-entered the poem, but this time, the pilgrim seems to recognize it in himself. Before, maybe he didn't recognize it or he was playing a game to cover it. Here he sees it straight out. The color that cowardice had painted my face when I saw my leader turn back and retreat from the gates of Dis made him hurry up and get a grip on his own pallor. Again, Virgil is changing color, a little tough for a shade, but... All right, let's have it. Uh, There's all kinds of, uh, I should say, commentary on this about what color is Virgil. Many of the early commentators want him to be red with anger. Others want him to be white with fear. I don't know. It says get a grip on his own pallor. He's definitely got something going on, whether he's blushing or he's white with fear. I'm not sure. Or he's just mad at Dante at this point for some reason. Mm, Maybe the poet behind the tale that's about to be told. Anyway, for some reason. So he stops like a man who listens alert since his eyes could not reach very far into the black air and the clouded fog. And then Virgil begins his bit. We still should be able to win this fight, he says, unless, and then it trails off. Unless. And it trails off with a broken sentence. 
Remember the last time I told you that in many ways this entire passage is a test of faith and that Virgil had passed his test because he's anticipating such a one? Well, here he seems to waver just a little bit. We should still be able to win this fight unless. What does that unless mean? He follows it up quickly, but such a one, notice he can't name God or divinity, but such a one was promised. Oh, I think it takes too long for another to come. There's much sitting behind these lines. So let's think about it one second. What does his unless mean? Unless somehow the divine promises failed, unless Beatrice has lied and there's no help coming, unless somehow something has changed in the pilgrim, that no, that the pilgrim himself no longer invites divine providence, unless these demons are too strong at this point, Interesting, right? There's a problem there. What is it that Virgil thinks could be happening as he trails off? He says, but such another one was promised. And then he says the line, oh, I think it takes too long for another to come. Surely this line has all sorts of resonances with the Messiah because Virgil is born before, quite a bit before, Jesus, and completes his epic, or dies with it, uncompleted in 19 BCE, before Common Era. So he dies, hmm, if we accept the dating of zero or one as the birth of Jesus, he dies about 19 years before the coming of Jesus. Surely this line has all kind of messianic overtones to it. I think it takes too long for another to come. And we're going to talk more about this, but this leads us out to the notion that Virgil in some way anticipated the coming, not only of Rome and the seat of the papacy, but the Messiah himself. But we're going to save that for down the line in comedy. But this line starts setting up that reference that Virgil's waiting for someone to come, waiting impatiently. Oh, is it going to take too long for another to come, for some kind of divine intervention to come, which he can't even name? The pilgrim says, I knew exactly that he had covered up what he had started to say with that unless and had spoken in a completely different way. So Virgil had started off into a bad direction. We should be able to win this fight unless. And then he finished up by going back to just kind of, wow, it's taking too long. Oh, I hope someone can come. And the pilgrim says, but what he said still filled me with fear because I understood the broken words to mean worse than even he intended. So the pilgrim, and this is what I think is interesting, the pilgrim is aware of the inner and outer spaces of Virgil. Remember in the last episode of this podcast, I said Virgil is getting an interiority. He's getting inner landscapes and outer landscapes. His inner landscapes of being oh, his brow down, brow shaved of all its proud effort and his eyes cast down. And I said he's got this external and internal, and then he tries to buck the pilgrim up, but he's hesitating inside. Remember this? Well, it seems here that the pilgrim is aware of the internal and external spaces of Virgil, which lends further credence to their development. So the pilgrim then decides he's got to find out something. He says, does anyone from the first circle where the only punishment is the loss of hope ever get down this far in the sad pit? Listen to that, where the only punishment is the loss of hope. What has Virgil just been saying? We should be able to win this fight unless, but such a one was promised. Oh, I think it takes too long for another to come. 
loss of hope. That's where we are. We're at the Pilgrim, and now his guide starting to lose a little hope. See, I told you, we won't leave Limbo. It's still with us. The ambivalence, the reticence, the strangeness of Limbo is still in the poem. All that kind of wild ambiguity that I found in the circle of Limbo, I think it's still sitting here, and it's following us down the circles of hell. So the pilgrim wants to know, hey, did anybody get this far down to the walls of Dis? At least tell me that much, right? And now Virgil launches in the story. Only rarely, he says, do any of us make this journey as I now go. To be honest, once before, I came this way conjured by remorseless Erichtho, who brings shades back to their bodies. I'm going to pass right over that. I'm coming back to her. I had not long been denuded from my flesh when she made me enter these walls to snatch a soul from the circle of Judas. That is the lowest, we're going to find out, the lowest circle of hell. I've already been down there, Virgil says. I had to go through these walls and go clear down to the bottom and get a soul off the bottom circle. Let me just stop and say one thing. Hell, as we already established from the gate of hell, was built as it were, before earth. Before the creation, the gate of hell says, hell itself was created. There had to be a place, as I explained to you when we got to the gate of hell way back in Inferno, there had to be a place for the fallen angels to go. So this place had to be created before the earth was created, as it were. Which means, and here's the point, that creation is an activity of encasement. In fact, creation is an activity of the encasement of evil. Just think about that for a minute. Creation itself, the very nature of creating the universe, is encasing hell with rings and rings of the heavens. And at the very center of this universe lies hell itself, that which is encased, you know, like like some kind of uh, skin lesion that's got something weighed down in it, and there's been layers and layers of scar tissue laid over it. Not that the heavens are scar tissue, but you know what I mean. There's this seed down at the bottom of it. The seed down at the bottom of this is hell. Think about what that says, A, for your notion of what creation is. Creation is adding wonder and awe and glory and beauty around to further and further and further encase a problem of evil. That's the first thing. And secondly, the very center of the universe is hell. It is the central point in the universe as known to Dante. That too must have giant ramifications for how you see the world and how you see your own concept in the world. So Virgil says, I had to go clear to the bottom to snatch a soul from the circle of Judas. There's nowhere lower or blacker or farther from the heaven that wheels over everything. I love this. That's the prima mobile. That's the top heaven that's wheeling around the earth in all of this music of the spheres and all the whirling spheres. In three lines, we went from the very bottom of hell to the very top of heaven. Circle of Judas to the heaven that wheels over everything. We went from the very center of the earth all the way up to the prima mobile, the first sphere that sets in motion everything else. In three lines, we got the whole cosmos. 
I well know the way, Virgil says. Well, clearly, he just laid out the whole cosmos for us. So you can be certain of that. This swamp that belches foul crap completely garters the sorrowful city. We can't get in without some sort of wrath. Ira. That's the word he uses, wrath. So they're in the circle of wrath, or they're coming out of it, standing on the ledge to the next circle. They can't get out of this without wrath, bringing back the notion of righteous indignation. Remember what the pilgrim feels for Filippo Argenti as he comes up out of the muck on the righteous indignation. I said this is this Aristotelian mean, that there's something between the poles of wrath, between this kind of mad, crazy, self-consuming wrath and sullenness. And there's got to be this Aristotelian mean of righteous indignation. That seems to be what Virgil's arguing here. We can't get into the city without some sort of righteous indignation. He just says, ira. But surely that's what he means because it's so curious to use this word at the edge of the circle of wrath to get into the gates of dis. Complicated, unbelievable, and now it's going to get more so. I've been waiting for Eric, though, this whole time. So, Virgil launches into this story. Once before, I came this way conjured by remorseless Erichtho, who brings shades back to their bodies. Who is Erichtho? Erichtho probably originates from Ovid, but really how Dante would know Erichtho is in Lucan's Pharsalia. Lucan's Pharsalia is written about 65 Common Era, and Erichtho is a major figure in that work. She is a Thessalian witch. She is able to call the, the dead back, or she's able to vivify dead bodies. In the Pharsalia, she is approached by Pompey the Great's son, Sextus Pompeius. Let me explain what's going on right here in the plot of the Pharsalia. Pompey the Great and Julius, who will become Caesar, and Crassus have formed the triumvirate that is holding the Roman Republic together. The triumvirate is collapsing, civil war is breaking out, and of course, the big civil war happens between Pompey and Julius. Julius ultimately wins. And in Lucan's Pharsalia, Julius's victory is not a good thing. Lucan is not one to favor Julius, and we'll get to this later in the poem. Lucan's view of Julius will color Dante's view of Julius, because the Republic is seen as a shining example of what a, we would use the word nation, what a nation can do. The empire is another matter entirely. The empire well, specifically, puts Christians to death. But the empire is not seen as necessarily a positive thing. And Julius, as the founder of the empire, is not seen as positive for Lucan and for Dante too. Okay, so Pompey is in his battle with Julius, and Pompey's son, Sextus Pompeius, seeks out Erichtho, this Thessalian witch, to figure out how she wants her to tell him Who's going to win this war? She ends up going to a battlefield. She ends up finding a corpse she can vivify in the Pharsalia. She finds one basically without injured lungs so it can talk. She vivifies it 
it then does, it then tells Sextus all kinds of things that he doesn't understand. But basically, what he what this vivified corpse says is that Sextus and his father Pompey the Great are going to lose this battle, and and, and Julius is going to win. Essentially, what happens in the sixth book of Fars- of the Pharsalia is that resurrecting of the corpse and the Erichtho story and all of that, and. Everybody sees the sixth book of the Pharsalia written in about 65 Common Era as a rewriting of the sixth book of the Aeneid written hmm, about, well, finished the Aeneid in 19 BCE, so maybe written about 25 BCE or a little long in there. The sixth book of, of Lucan's work is a rewriting of the sixth book of of the Aeneid in which Aeneas goes to the underworld with the Cumaean Sibyl. And the Cumaean Sibyl, Aeneas's good guide, is then twisted around by Lucan into a Rictho, this horrible god. She's she's said to be horribly ugly, to have dry clouds all around her head. Her breath is supposed to turn everything stinky around her. She's a terrifying figure who who reanimates the dead. And she is a direct reference to the Cumaean Sibyl. That is, she's the evil inversion of who leads Aeneas through the afterlife. Okay, here they all are. But here's what's curious. There is no way that Virgil ever ran into Erichtho. And furthermore, there's no way that there's even a precedence for this. Virgil is long dead by the time Lucan writes the Pharsalia. These references are overlapping each other in strange ways, and there is no other place anywhere except right here in comedy in which anyone ever thinks Virgil got called by this witch and called down to snatch a soul out of the bottom of hell and bring it back up to the top so, I don't know, so it could speak up in the top world. I suppose that's what she's calling him to do, since that's what she does with the bodies in the Pharsalia. I suppose she's sending Virgil on this mission to grab a soul, bring it back up so she can shove it in a body and make the body do whatever she wants it to do. Just think for a minute. Virgil's got a true backstory. And this backstory is fascinating because it is absolutely made up by our poet. Why is that fascinating? Because almost every character in comedy is, for Dante, a historical character. Everyone we will ever meet, yes, we will ultimately meet Adam of Adam and Eve. Yes, we will meet characters who maybe you and I don't think are real people. These are all real people to Dante. Aeneas, Erichtho, they're all hmm, actual characters. Francesca da Romini, they're all real people. That's the thing. Character itself is developed out of actual historical characters. Noah, Paul, Aristotle, name them. Name anyone you want. Chiaco, we had a problem with. We couldn't pin him down, but we assume that Chiaco is some a Florentine that Dante knew, and I told you all the different ways that Chiaco amongst the gluttons could be. There is one shining example in all of comedy, and we have to wait till the 
end of Purgatorio to get to Matilda. And when we get to Matilda, we may meet the one character that does not have any historical precedence. But that's the one character, and even that is highly debated by scholars. So what's going on here? Dante is inventing a backstory for Virgil. Given that all the characters are supposed to be historical entities from Francesca da Ramini all the way back to Adam of Adam and Eve or St. Paul or name any pope you want, Pope Nicholas III, all these characters, Ulysses even, Dante sees them as historical figures, figures with actual historical weight and resonance. And yet here, Dante is making up a story for Virgil, a story that has no precedence anywhere else. If you don't think that indicates that we've come over a bump in the poem, wow, just think it through. This means that Virgil, he's got developmental psychology. He knows there's something about him. There's stuff that we don't know about him that has happened in his life that we can't even know from reading the Aeneid or reading anything about Virgil. We can only know it because <laughs> it's here in comedy. So let's talk about Eric, though. Why is Eric, though, in this poem? Why is this backstory here? I'm going to give you seven reasons why Erichtho is here in the poem, and I'm not going to actually choose necessarily amongst them. I will admit to you that this is my teaching style. My teaching style is to offer multiplicity, to offer lots of answers, and to revel in the absolute multiple meanings that can exist inside of all these answers. So why is it Rick, though, this strange witch? Why is she inserted into Virgil's story? Okay, number one, Virgil is a sure guide. Not because he is a sea of all wisdom, as he's previously been described, but because he's experienced this journey once before. Now we know why Virgil is a sure guide, and we no longer have to take Virgil on faith. If there was a way in which the poem was asking me to take certain things on faith, now they seem to be answered. Because Virgil not only is a good guide because he knows a lot, he's a good guide because he's actually done all this before. Thus, Dante the poet has added to Virgil's character a backstory while also taking away from his character. He's not a demigod who lectures about the goddess fortune. Rather, we don't have to take Virgil's word for how hell works on faith. We know he's been here. So the answer to how does Virgil know the way, it's not just because he's a smart guy or the greatest poet that ever lived or he's somehow the summa of knowledge or anything like that. Nope. The answer is he's done this before. So experience, experiential knowledge becomes the basis of how you know the truth of the character. Or if you can't see the modern world right there, I don't even know what to say. That Dante gives this to Virgil, again, adds to his character. It makes him much more complex. But it also takes away from his character, especially in a medieval context. He is no longer an oracle or a demigod or some kind of unbelievably smart guy who can think his way out of any circumstance. Nope. He knows the way because he's been here. Two, 
In the Middle Ages, Virgil is often seen as a magician. This is a common folkloric understanding of the poet Virgil. So perhaps here he is given a mystical or magical resonance because he's able to go to the bottom of hell and snatch souls out. And this links to a long medieval tradition of seeing Virgil as a magician, as a, a mystical figure in some way in his own life. We'll come back to this. This is part of the way he anticipates the Messiah in medieval thought or, or is able himself to anticipate the Messiah. But we'll come back to that. But nonetheless, that's sitting back there. And it is a second thing, hmm, problem for Erichtho in the poem. Basically, Virgil is becoming more of a magician because hmm, witches up top can get him to snatch souls out of the bottom. Three, you realize that Virgil has just done what Christ did. This is Virgil's harrowing of hell. Remember, Christ came down into limbo and lifted out all the souls there and took them out, and Virgil apparently witnessed that and maybe even witnessed the demonic defense at the gates of hell. Remember all of that? Well, look what Virgil just did. He just had his own little personal harrowing of hell. He went to the bottom and snatched a soul out and, I guess, brought it up to the top. So Virgil is in a weird parallel structure here with Christ or a minor version of Christ. Weird resonances running right there with Virgil's personal harrowing of hell. Four, if Lucan is rewriting the Aeneid, then Dante is rewriting Lucan and, furthermore, fusing Virgil into Lucan's poem, thereby playing a joke on Lucan. Because if Lucan is cribbing Virgil for his sixth book of the Pharsalia, then Dante is picking them both up and shoving Virgil into the middle of a Lucanian myth, Erichtho, and shoving him there, thus rewriting Lucan in a way that saves Virgil. If, in fact, Erichtho is a send-up of Virgil's all-too-good Cumaean Sibyl, then Dante has just proved the last laugh on Lucan by putting one of Lucan's characters into Dante's poem and making that character interact with Virgil, thereby ooh, further fusing Virgil and Lucan. Five, Erichtho here is turned into a providential figure. After all, she is paving the way for our pilgrim's journey. She is a foul, horrid, awful thing in the Pharsalia. But apparently, even foul, horrid, awful things serve the purposes of God. Because here, Erichtho, by calling Virgil up in this evil act of witchcraft, has in fact then paved the way for our pilgrim because now our pilgrim has a guide who knows the way and has already been down here. Six. <laughs> this is also fascinating to me. Dante the poet has put Virgil in a Lucan landscape, thereby signaling his renewed view of Virgil and even his own poem. We Remember, I've gone on and on about the plate tectonics. Look right here we've started to come across into a Lucan plate. And in this Lucan plate, we're not 
doing away with Virgil. We're making Virgil stand on the Lucan plate of the poem, the Lucan tectonic plate, so to speak, of the poem itself. And so Dante's construct, the, that is the framework of his own poem, that is it, that it is a Virgilian-based poem, has widened now and now it's a Lucan reference with Virgil still in it, which means the, the relationship to the classical texts are becoming more complicated. And believe me, from here on out, they will get much more complicated. Wait until we add Ovid to this mix. And finally, seven. Virgil is moving from a mere guide in the poem into a piece of the poem's overall meaning and architecture. He is, to use a way modern way to think about it, he has become a fiction inside a fiction. He has become a character complete with his own backstory and motivations inside a larger imagined landscape. Or how's this? He's become an imagined character inside of an, a larger imagined landscape, which means that Virgil is becoming part of the poem's architecture, not just a guide who says, look at this and look at this and look at the lustful and look at the gluttons and notice this over here and watch out over here. Not just that, but part of the actual architecture of the poem itself, part of its, this is going to sound too big, part of its fictive fabric, the fabric of its fiction. He's becoming woven down into it, not just as a historical figure who leads Dante, or not just as a poetic father, but as an actual character in the narrative. These are all the things that this strange story of Erichtho does. It causes a giant rupture in the poem. It's so strange and so wild and so fascinating that this sudden multiple classical references and Virgil's backstory and no precedence for this anywhere and Dante's just making it up out of whole cloth and why is he doing that? All standing here in front of the gates of Dis in a state of Hopeful doubt? Doubtful hope? Doubtful faith? Faithful doubt? <laughs> Some kind of ambivalent human space that they're standing in. How long will it take for someone to come? Just that. It is, the poem has gotten so complex. I was waiting for Eric, though, for the longest time because I find this one of the most fascinating nodes in Inferno. And it indicates to me that the poem is growing. It's allowing for so much interpretive space. Uh, how can you not love it? I hope you love this episode of the podcast, Boring with Dante, and I hope you'll subscribe. Like the podcast, drop right down there to the bottom of the Apple podcast page. You'll see a way to rate the podcast and to leave a review. Leave that review. Show your guide through comedy some love there because it really helps with the analytics and I will thank you immensely for that personally. No, not you over there. No, not you over there. I mean you. You right there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for leaving that subscribe to the podcast and come back next time because we're going to still be sitting right here in hopeful doubt or doubtful hope or doubtful faith or faithful doubt or something on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Mm -hmm.